Good morning. The Lord be with you. Last Sunday, um, actually this happens once a month, second Sunday of every month, um, I was next door at our neighbors, Tanglewood and Memory Garden. After doing two services here, I head over there to do worship, two services, and I have to be honest and say that I don't always look forward to that. I'm tired after I leave here. I want to go home and take a nap, but then I've got to go next door to do two services. But that aside, nearly every time that I do that, it's an amazing experience, and last week was no exception. In fact, it was especially so. Last week, our attendance here was rather low, whether it was because of the time change or whatever reason. Went over there yesterday, or last Sunday, and both services were exceptionally full. And I don't, even, I don't even know how to share this with you in words, except that the Holy Spirit just shows up and showed up last Sunday in such powerful ways um, that are just amazing, I mean, in ways that I don't even experience here. And you would think, especially with Memory Garden, with uh, some of the challenges there, how difficult it would be to communicate, it's incredible. I mean, God just like breaks through whatever the walls are and uh, just enables me to communicate well, enables them seemingly to receive well what is heard. And it's just powerful things happen. And um, one of the things that we talked about last week was life. And even, even there in those sometimes difficult circumstances, aging, loneliness, declining health, memory loss, they all agreed that life is still a gift. And every day... Every day is a blessing. And maybe we need to be reminded of that too, that life is a gift. Every breath we take, every beat of our heart is a gift from God. And every morning that you wake up is an opportunity to either cherish that day or take it for granted. But it is a gift every single day. Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, is credited with saying that the glory of God is man fully alive. Jesus said... I have, Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full, have it abundantly. In the midst of a broken world and our own brokenness, Jesus came to give us life, new life, resurrection life, and eternal life. But there's a catch, a little secret that eludes most of us. We all want life, abundant life, life and more life. We want to be fully alive, but it can't happen without death, without dying. And so if you're dying to live, listen up. The principles, the goals, the values of the kingdom of God, of the revolution of God, the reign of God are upside down from our way of thinking. They appear counterintuitive, countercultural. Life comes from death. It sounds like a riddle, a puzzle, a paradox. Things are not what they appear. Even Jesus' life and ministry did not appear to be successful by this world's standards. His ministry lasted a, a mere three years, a flash in the pan. Jesus never left Palestine, walked everywhere he went, never wrote a book, largely rejected by his own people and died a criminal's death. While he at times drew crowds of thousands, near the end of his ministry, the crowds had, had diminished considerably. In fact, at one point 
in the Gospels, Jesus comes to his disciples as, as these people are leaving or abandoning Jesus. And Jesus says to his disciples, are you going to leave me also? But all of that changed, at least briefly, near the very end, uh, the last week of Jesus' life and ministry. He enjoyed sort of an uptick, an, an upswing, if you will, in, the, in his popularity. And it came on the heels of raising Lazarus from the dead after he'd been in the tomb four days. That got people's attention. It held the hope that death is not the end. And news of that miracle spread like wildfire. And the people who had been there, who witnessed Jesus raising Lazarus from the tomb, continued to follow Jesus and others joined them. And then when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem, they hailed him then as a hero, as a savior, as the Messiah and as king. Even though Jesus came in meek, humble, riding on the colt of a donkey. This, of course, frustrated the religious leaders and the Pharisees. In fact, they said, look how the whole world has gone after him. If only it were so. So this is where our passage this morning picks up. It is immediately after Jesus came into Jerusalem, um, riding on, on the donkey, and uh, we're reading this morning from John chapter 12. So if you'd like to go there with me, it's on page 1043 of the Pew Bible. John chapter 12, beginning with verse 20. Or you can simply listen along. Let's hear God's word. Again, John, 20, John 12, starting with verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. John mentions at the beginning of our reading this morning some Greeks who requested to see Jesus. They were likely Jewish proselytes, Jewish converts. Uh, or simply God-fearing people who came to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of Passover. They're called Greeks, which means that they may have been from Greece, but also the term Greek was used interchangeably simply for someone who was a non-Jew or a Gentile. It's a little bit like the uh, Amish calling us all English, no matter what we are. I'm not Irish. I accidentally put on green today. So, <laughs> but, uh, so um, you know, we're all called English by, by the Amish Greek was just a common term for Gentile. So they, they want to see Jesus. And it's an interesting detail in the narrative. The Jews had largely rejected Jesus 
at this point, and so the gospel would go to others. It also serves as a foreshadowing of Gentile inclusion. The request to see Jesus comes through Philip and Andrew, and Jesus' response is, time's up. Time's up. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Up until now, Jesus had been saying a number of times, my time has not yet come. But with this, something has changed. In a way, the Greeks signal the closing of a chapter for Jesus. And his ministry in Judaism is finished, and he now belongs to the wider world. Jesus does not meet with them, but instead gives an explanation of what it means that the hour has come. He is, of course, speaking of his imminent death. Jesus came resolutely to Jerusalem, knowing that his work would not be complete until he had laid down his life. Jesus said, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. He was speaking, of course, first and foremost of himself. He is the grain of wheat. His death would produce much fruit and result in many living for God. The disciples could not have imagined that Jesus' death would actually inaugurate the kingdom of God, that it would throw open the floodgates of God's grace, that it would open a great door in the cosmos never to be closed again. They could not have imagined the explosion and proliferation of life that would come from one death. Romans 5.18, Paul says, Just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all people, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all people. When a seed dies, it produces fruit. Unless a kernel of wheat is buried in the ground, it will not become a blade of wheat, producing many more seeds. Life comes from death. This principle is seen in nature, not only in seeds, but even, even as the deadness of winter gives way to spring and new life. We see it in nature, but it's also true in, in, spiritually. Jesus taught and modeled this kingdom principle all through his ministry. Call it, call it divine surrender, a divine demotion, downward mobility. It is the way of the cross that leads to life. There is no life without death, no resurrection without crucifixion for Jesus or for us. This is a difficult concept for us to grasp. We have heard it before many times, but we do not easily embrace it or own it as our own. We cling and grasp and claw our way to the top. Ascent comes natural for us, descent not so much. We're good at self-preservation, self-promotion, not so good at humility and surrender. Listen again to verse 25 of our passage this morning. I'm going to read this now from the message, uh, Eugene Peterson. Anyone who holds on to life, just as it is, destroys that life. But if you let it go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. The ego creates a false self a false identity. We believe fake news about ourselves. It's so difficult for us to die to self. The ego does not want to be diminished. And the bigger the ego, the more unlikely you are to experience personal development psychologically, emotionally, and relationally, 
and the less likely you are to experience spiritual growth into greater Christ-like character. Do you remember the term yuppie? I haven't heard it used in, in a very long time, and maybe it's become passe. And maybe it's because of its very definition, it doesn't get used anymore. The definition of a yuppie is a young urban professional, and it, it is characterized by youth, financial success, and upward mobility. And it was used of baby boomers back in the 80, 80s and 90s, and maybe that's why we're not youthful anymore. Maybe that's why they don't use the term yuppie anymore. Um, some of you will remember the television show, 30-something. It was a favorite of mine, but it was described by critics at the time as a bunch of whining yuppies. The church sometimes reflected that same cultural phenomenon. Church growth and church leadership seminars in, back in the 90s and, and maybe beyond reflected that yuppie uh, culture of bigger is better and growing large successful megachurches. Everything in the culture was geared for climbing your way up the ladder to success and greatness. And the church often reflected this bent, despite the fact that it flies in the face of kingdom values. Jesus was all about downward mobility. I'm a baby boomer. I never, I never quite fit into the yuppie mold, even though that was my era. I want to believe that it was because I was, I was and am trying to follow Jesus, even in the downward mobility. I don't do that well, perhaps, and, and don't do it consistently, but that has been my desire. And I never seemed to be on that track of upward mobility. It just didn't, wasn't really a desire of mine either. Now, don't get me wrong. I cling to my identity. I hang on to my stuff. I put way too much security in, 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 uh, in uh, whatever, in my own wealth or possessions or whatever than I care to admit. One of my brothers when I was in seminary, knowing my keen interest in architecture, said to me, he said, why don't you change your course, Rick? Why don't you, why don't you go into a career where you're going to make some real money? But I was called to ministry. My first assignment out of seminary was to a small Lutheran high school in the Detroit area. It was a one-year assignment. I had prepared for pastoral ministry. And here I was called to, to teach at this little school in Detroit. The salary wasn't much. I had six preps a day, which was insane. I wasn't excited about the prospect of moving to Michigan, if you can believe that, and even less so about the Detroit area, but I followed the call. And just as an aside, that one-year assignment turned into four years, and I loved it. I loved teaching. I loved the students. I loved the whole experience. I grew in that, and I had the opportunity to pour into the lives of, of young people. And then the Lord called me to be a part of a new church plant. It meant leaving the security of my call, the denomination that I had been raised in, trained in, and ordained in, which felt like a kind of death in itself. It felt scary. We had no outside support or help. If this thing flopped, I don't know where I would have landed. I answered the call, and I stepped out in faith. In fact, I remember standing on the shores of Lake Michigan when I made the decision to accept that call to, to, that, to plant that church. I was 33. It was my Jesus year. And I thought, it's time, to, it's time to step out. It's time to let go and trust God for this journey. Planting a church was hard work, but it was also an incredible experience giving birth, giving life to a new church. I served there six years. 
Then God called me to leave that church, and it felt like death again. The Lord called me to serve a little covenant church in northern Michigan. Out on the end of, out on the, end of the Leelanau Peninsula, it's called the Pinky of Michigan. And it's surrounded by Lake Michigan and Grand Traverse Bay, and it is beautiful, and people up there say, a view of the bay is half your pay. And they mean it. My salary was less than half what I was making in the church plant. It seemed to be fitting, though, the pattern of downward mobility. I served that church 12 years, fell in love with the people, fell in love with the community, and with northern Michigan. The area is spectacularly beautiful. You maybe have never heard that before. It's a vacation and retirement destination. Great health care, affluence, vitality, property values that are ever climbing, just like here in Jamestown. <laughs> then the Lord called me here to Jamestown, to Zion. And pardon me for saying this, and I have said it way too many times, but once again, it felt like death leaving behind a place that I loved and was loved, leaving paradise, and it's not all paradise, but leaving paradise for a Rust Belt city plagued by poverty and addiction. I came because I was called, and it just seemed to fit the pattern. When I look back now on the past nine years, I realize, I realize how rich my life has become here with friends new experiences, and growth in myself that I never could have imagined. And none of that would have happened if I had stayed in the comfort of where I was. I had to let go so that God could do something new with me. So often when God calls you to leave home, to surrender something, to submit, to follow, it is scary. And it feels like death, and sometimes it will mean a certain kind of death. But on the other side, you'll discover God is faithful and the giver of life. It is Satan and the world and our own flesh that rob us of life. You know, some people are slow in, in coming to faith and giving their lives fully to, to, to God or fully to Christ. In fact, they'll say things like, well, I, eventually well, I will. I plan to. I want to give my life fully. But first... I want to, I, I, first I want to, um, that's the word I want to say, uh, for, I, I, want, I want to live a little. I want to live a little before I do that. Never understanding that they are dead already and that Jesus gives life, abundant life. God wants to give you life, abundant life, and if you release the grip, if you the grip that you have on your ego, on your, on your securities, on your false identities, God can grow you. But you have to let go. You have to be willing to surrender. I won't be surprised when one of these days God taps me on the shoulder and says, Rick, it's time to join me in another adventure, another divine demotion. That will be scary. It may feel like death. But it will make you even more fully alive. Jesus taught and modeled downward mobility 
his entire ministry, right to the end. Remember the scene in the upper room? Jesus stooped to wash his disciples' feet. They had come into that upper room just having been arguing among themselves about which of them is the greatest. And Jesus stoops to wash their feet. He ends their ridiculous argument by stooping to wash their feet. The next day, he will show the ultimate surrender, the ultimate sacrifice by laying down his life for them, for us. Jesus modeled true greatness. Jesus taught and modeled the values of the kingdom, the revolution of God that began with the incarnation and ended with the crucifixion. Paul, in in Philippians chapter 2, describes the divine descent of the Son of God. He says, Christ, being in in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, in other words, something to cling to, something to hang on to, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Divine demotion, divine descent. Jesus demonstrated this divine humility and vulnerability when he went to the cross for us. God's wisdom and power are seen most vividly, not in great miracles, but in great humility and surrender and vulnerability. From the incarnation to the crucifixion, Jesus was all about downward mobility. He demonstrated the necessity and the power of the cross that in dying we live. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God. It is the power of God. This kingdom value of descent or demotion is not reserved, by the way, for the king alone, but also for his subjects. Paul says, again in Philippians 2, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. A willingness to stoop, to surrender, to serve, to sacrifice, and to die. These are where true greatness comes from. Not the clinging to possessions, and personal security, or clamoring for positions of power and prestige, but humility and surrender. In dying, we live. Spiritual maturity is marked by a willingness to surrender. It is recognizing that it is foolish to try to remain in control of life. Following Jesus will sometimes lead us to unknown, difficult, and uncomfortable places, David Benner says it well, quote, The way to ascent is the way of control, willfulness, grasping, and clutching. The way of descent is the way to surrender, willingness, and letting go. Nothing that we fail to give away will ever really be ours. Only that which has died can be raised from the dead. Christian spirituality is a path of descent, not ascent. Rather than being a spirituality of self-improvement, it is a spirituality of following Jesus on a journey of dying to our false self so that we might discover our true and larger identity in Christ. End of quote. Life is full of opportunities to practice choosing surrender. It can come in minor interruptions to your day, to a major crisis that changes your life forever. Regardless of how small or great, these events serve as reminders that despite our efforts and desires, we are not in control. 
Admittedly, choosing the downward path does not come natural. We want glory, not the cross. Exaltation, not humiliation. Life, not death. Even Jesus was tempted to avoid the cross. Verse 27 of our text today. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. True life, real life, can only come through death. What seems difficult and counterintuitive turns out to be good news. As we discover Jesus' downward way of surrender and letting go, we also discover the richness and beauty and life that God intends. God breaks in. If we surrender, if we submit, if we die, God breaks in, and we experience Him and life in a new way. As best I'm able, with God's help, I am dying to live. I hope to keep practicing this the rest of my life so that one day when I come to the end of this life, I am completely and utterly ready for the ultimate surrender, the final letting go and falling into the arms of Jesus in whom is all my life. Let's pray. Loving and gracious God, we cannot begin to comprehend the depths to which you descended to rescue and save us, the way that you gave yourself away. Give us that same spirit and attitude that was in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Lord, how difficult it is for us to accept changes that come in life or to make the necessary adjustments. Enable us to trust you and to pray, not my will, but your will be done. In the end, Grant us new and abundant life through Christ our Lord. Amen.